0: So welcome to the ESPN Player Gridiron College Football Show. We're back again. I'm Simon Clancy, along with uh, Gridiron editor Matt Sherry. It's been another tremendous weekend of college football, Matt. Big game, shocks, a load of playoff connotations, new Heisman candidates emerging, old ones disappearing. We're going to look at who would be in the playoff right now if the season ended today and who we think would be in the playoff at the end of the season. We're going to ask if LSU are done, if the Pac-12 is a complete dud, Look at what happened to Kentucky and preview another hot slate of games this weekend. But the only place to start, Matt, was the most anticipated Red River showdown in years. It finished 48-45 to Texas, who went ahead, stayed ahead, and then all of a sudden sort of fell apart. Uh, and Oklahoma came roar, roaring back on the arm and the legs of Kyler Murray, brought it back to forty-five all, and then Cameron Dicker kicked the the winning forty-yard field goal at the end. Did did we see this coming in terms of Oklahoma's defense and Texas's revival, uh, and we just ignored it given Oklahoma's defensive frailties, or was this a, a complete shock?
1: No, I think we I think we saw it coming. We I think we said on the podcast last week we thought it was going to be a close game, and we thought that Texas had had more than a shot to win. Um, I don't think I necessarily saw the dominance coming because. It's a strange thing to say when Oklahoma were tied with two minutes left, but Texas really did dominate the game. It was only them taking the foot off the gas and getting a little bit, getting a little bit kind of, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Just getting very cautious with the, with the game in hand that that brought them back into it. And it, it would have been interesting to see the change in narrative had they ended up losing because. I think Tom Herman would have would have come under the microscope because they moved away from everything that had worked for them, and frankly, without that, I think Texas wins the game handily. So I think we saw a potential Texas win coming, but I don't think we necessarily saw coming the level of domination. And I mean, some players went in their favour. There was a bizarre Kyler Murray fumble in in their own territory that that gave, set Texas up in the in the second half, but. At the end of the day, Texas is back. I I do feel like they're back. I don't think they're necessarily back to national championship level, but given how shambolic it has been uh, since basically the last couple of years of Mac Brown's tenure, this is the best we've seen in Texas for a little while. And and actually that whole conference, I think, is offering a lot more than, than usual as well
0: it's fascinating though you say are texas back because essentially we don't really know how good west virginia are for example they've only beaten texas tech they're they are in terms of ranked teams they will play texas on this mammoth weekend november the 3rd and essentially if texas win that and knock west virginia out of the running then oklahoma texas is going to be a, a rematch at jerry world for the for the conference championship so we'll get to see it all over again um texas win that and I think it's hard to keep them out of the playoff, don't you?
1: It's tough. I mean, it, it really depends how it shakes out in the um, in the Big Ten as well. Because you, I, the way I look at it, you're probably going to have... Uh, I mean, so we think about we've got Alabama, we think are going to be in. Clemson look like now they'll be unbeaten. Um, that they, They've kind of overcome, I think, the biggest tests. They've still got Miami to play. But I feel like Clemson will grow into the season. I'd be stunned if not Dame aren't unbeaten. So I think them three places, in my mind, are pretty much locked up. Now, that doesn't even get into the fact that Georgia are almost certainly going to be a one-loss team alongside Along- the winner of this division, sorry. At worst. Yeah, exactly. And then we might have an unbeaten Ohio State. Now, I don't think we'll have four unbeaten teams. I don't think it's ever happened in the in the BCS era, never mind just the CFP era. Um... So there will be, I think, a, a glut of one-loss teams. But then, I mean, if if a Michigan can can go into Ohio State and win, and then win the Big Ten, is that record better than the, than the winner of the Big Twelve? I, I really don't think we can predict it. And I think the I think the fact that we we might have more unbeaten teams than usual this year means the committee is going to have the hardest decision they've ever had on the fourth spot.
0: And uh, you know, you look at a team like UCF who ranked number 9 I think at the moment they they almost certainly will be on the outside looking in because strength of schedule will kill them Texas jumped up all the way from 19 to number 8 in the ranking, so they're getting significantly closer um, do you think that you know because oftentimes you see teams win games like they did at the weekend and then the following weekend they just can't get up to the same level and, uh, and fall away Texas cannot afford now another mistake can they?
1: No absolutely not I mean two losses when we're going to have such a variety of one loss teams two losses is unfathomable for a team to make it so yeah they have to go through the rest of the schedule unbeaten I'm, and I'm not sure with the will I mean you've got to beat I
0: mean to it's tough games out. isn't it I mean they've got Oklahoma State this weekend uh, sorry Baylor this weekend then Oklahoma State Baylor, Baylor are a good team Oklahoma State's not a bad team then West Virginia then Texas Tech who could you know on their day could, can really play Iowa State are a difficult game on the uh, 18th of November as well for them to finish off with Kansas which they should win but it's not like they've got a patsy schedule all the way through now it's not like Notre Dame in terms of walking towards the playoff no
1: and then you got to beat Oklahoma or West Virginia as well on in a a conference championship game so it's 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 far from it and I mean as a Texas fan you look at that two ways one it reduces the possibility of getting there but actually the other way is you're going to have a great strength of schedule if you actually do manage to navigate it my worry with Texas and and it, it really head in this game as well, they don't put teams away. They regularly let teams hang around and you can't really live like that every single week. And I would, I would be concerned that it might not necessarily be a West Virginia or an Oklahoma. It might be a competitive, tough, well-coached team like Baylor or somebody like that who hangs around, makes a play late in the game and then you're out of the picture altogether.
0: I'm not going to lie. I turned this off at 38:17, and, and, and then you phoned me up and told me to turn it back on again because it was about to go 45:45, 45, 45, which was, you know, just an astonishing turnaround. Mike Stoops, the, the Oklahoma defensive coordinator, lost his job this week. He was fired after the, essentially the defensive debacle with Ruffin McNeil taking over. McNeil, very close to to Lincoln Riley, and has been for a number of years through Riley's journey as a, a as a coach, position coach first, then as a head coach. It's not a surprise that Stoops was was out, was it? Because that defense has been, you know, at best average and at worst a flat disaster, really.
1: Yeah, and I mean the fact that he was there in the first place was a was as much of a kind of tip, hot tip to, to nepotism as it was his abilities as a coordinator. I mean, he was essentially there because he was there when his dad was there, who Lincoln Riley replaced. So. I mean, Lincoln Riley's lost, lost, what, three games in charge of Oklahoma in, in, in nearly two years. And I would say all of those games have been a result of some bad defense. So um, I, I agree with the change. And I think that Lincoln Riley can he's got a hold of the programme obviously but it must be difficult you've taken over from a a head coach who was there for a lot of years his son's still the defensive coordinator it it feels a little bit more like it might be completely Lincoln Riley's entity now and I I don't think that that's a bad thing that's a bad thing
0: a word for Sam Ellinger who played a, a brilliant game it was a great game plan and he beat them with his arm and he beat them with his legs he performed outstandingly didn't he I mean he really really had an excellent game and not just not just a game manager kind of game either, did he? He was more than a game manager. And now he, I think it's something like 165 passes now without an interception. He's, he's playing good, mistake-free football.
1: He is, and you, you marry that with a very, with defence that's playing playing really well. And it's, it's a tough combination to beat. He made a lot of players with his legs. I think that the one thing where I would agree more with the Stoops firing is, how many times did we have to watch him on a designed quarterback run, get three yards on a a key third down, key fourth down, key goal line play. I mean, at the end of the day, they ran that same play three or four times and it worked every time. Couldn't stop it, That's not good from a coordination point of view. I mean, you've got to tell the guys that that might be coming, make some adjustments to stop it. So I, I don't think it was a brilliant coaching performance on the other side to stop it, but I thought both quarterbacks were great. I mean, Kyler Murray's touchdown run and if people haven't seen it yet go and find it it was late in the game about a 70 yard run it looked the commentators saying he needs to get out of bounds he needs to get out of bounds then seconds later bam he's turned up failed nobody is anywhere near him that's how explosive a run it is and that i thought i thought it was a a great advert for college football alongside that penn state ohio state game the game of the year for me and and if people can go back and watch the highlights i uh, i recommend that they do it was fantastic
0: Let's flip to the SEC because LSU suffered their first defeat of the season and somewhat surprising against Florida, although the Gators have really begun to pick it up under Dan Mullen as the season has gone on. Now, a two-headed question. Is it all over for them or the fact that they now host Georgia? I mean, they can't slip up now, but they host Georgia and they host Alabama. You know, if they can win both of those games, and that's a massive ask, but if they can... They're going to pose some pretty different questions come the end of the season as well, aren't they? A one-loss LSU team against an improving Florida who ends up beating Alabama number one and Georgia number two on the way. It's going to be hard to keep them out of the conversation at the end.
1: Well, I mean, if they beat Alabama, I think Alabama are potentially out of the playoff. I really do, because at the end of the day, Alabama's strength of schedule is really not great. Now, that is probably the one game on, on it that you would say is a real test. And if they don't win that... I mean, I guess they would need to beat Georgia as well because then LSU would have two losses and Alabama would still get in the championship game. But there is a route where if they beat Alabama, they could knock Alabama out of it. And yeah, if they win both of those games, then they go into the SEC championship game. And whoever wins the SEC championship game is going to get to the playoff. I think that's pretty much nailed on. So so yeah, it's still open for them. I feel a bit sorry for LSU because... I can't think of a team who've had it harder than they have over the first few weeks. And it felt like with Georgia on the horizon that was just the wrong game at the wrong time against Florida. They've they've already won on the road at Auburn, they've won at, at Miami on a neutral site. They've done they've done it really the hard way. So I I did feel a little bit sorry for them because it felt like that was the wrong game at the wrong time against a very good Florida team and I would say from Florida's perspective or certainly Dan Mullen's perspective that game showed why he took that job. He'd done a great job at Mississippi State, but there is a limit to where you can take that programme. Now, his 4 and 1 of Florida in a year that you would say was a, was a bit of a mulligan for him, really. I mean, nobody expected one loss at this point. So that shows why coaches take these top tier jobs, simply because of the level of talent in the building. And I think Mullen, I think the arrow's pointing up for Mullen. I wouldn't be surprised to see him get Florida back into the. The national title mix for the first time since Urban Meyer left.
0: Yeah, I mean it's interesting that, you know, what he did with Felipe Franks, who was essentially written off, wasn't he, under the previous administration. It'll be frightening to see what he does when he gets a real quarterback. Well he's got he's got a
1: he's got a five-star kid in, in the building now who I mean, they haven't played him yet, but that doesn't mean he can't be a great college quarterback. I think because we're seeing so many true freshmen's play well immediately now, our expectations are that every guy is going to be like that. That's not the case, but if I was a young quarterback and I was looking around the country for a coach who I thought could make me an NFL quarterback and bring me along, Dan Mullen would be in the top three on the list of guys I'd be looking to.
0: Yeah, Emory Jones is the kid, yeah. isn't he? The, the, yeah. and you talk about Alabama, and we'll, you know, we've kind of ignored them through through the pod pretty much because they've been so dominant. But they're not. They're not unbeatable Alabama certainly defensively they've got some you know I don't think you know when I see them I think you know they're an offensive machine but Tosh Lupoi's defense don't look altogether comfortable at times they've not really been pressured you know they're doing you know with Damien Harris and, and Tua Tungavaila and Jerry Judy and things but you know, the injury to Trayvon Diggs and, um, you know, they've had the injuries to Terrell Lewis and Chris Allen. They're not unbeatable defensively, I, I don't think. I think that you can score points on Alabama and I think it'll be interesting when you end up playing them, you know, in a big game when, when Georgia play them, when LSU play them and uh, uh, and they really face up to a proper offence for the first time. Speaking of LSU's offence, did Florida essentially expose the limitations of Joe Burrow as nothing much more than a game manager? I know you like him very much, but I think it was that it was a game where he you, you needed him to step up in those big moments and he really didn't quite have what it took when the chips were down.
1: I mean, it's been a bit helder-skelder with them all the way through, hasn't it? It's been that one play on fourth and seven that's got them over the line. I wonder whether they exposed him or whether they exposed an offensive line that I think can be got at. I'm not sure whether the it's a it's. I'm not sure it's the kind of dominating front that you really need to play that style of football at the highest level, which is ball control, win through your running game, make the odd key play. That is predicated really on being in third and three a lot of the time, and then having your quarterback make a throw at that point. So I'm not sure. I mean. I, the thing with Joe Burrow is I do like him because this is a kid who came into the programme about two months before the start of the season, has shown some good things in with limited reps in practice. I think I think what they've they've got from Joe Burrow so far is outweighs what their expectations could have possibly been before the season. So I would like to give it a little bit more time on him and certainly see him early next season before I make a judgment but I can see signs that potentially there are some limitations there so I think the book is still to be written on on Burrow
0: couple of big SEC losers at the weekend Kentucky who we've talked about for a few weeks now fell to Texas A&M in overtime Auburn pretty much out of contention. Why did, why did the Wildcats, first of all, why did the Wildcats only get Benny Snell 13 touches? Heisman Trophy candidate. They sort of went away from what they'd done so well. I know that Texas A&M, that front seven, plays the run very well, but it felt like they just went away and put the ball in the hands of, of Terry Wilson, who's not a very good quarterback, and they suffered because of it.
1: Yeah, that was the disappointment for me. It felt like it felt like they didn't go into the game anticipating that they would struggle to run the ball against a defensive front that is as good as any when it comes to stopping the run. And and that's that's coaching, isn't it? I mean, that's the disappointment. They've, they've got this far on a good veteran group and some good coaching, but I think they really missed a trick in that game. And, and we're out coached by an operator in Jimbo Fisher, who, who, like Dan Mullen, actually, is having a very, very good first season in a new place. Um I think part of this, Simon, in the SEC with with LSU and Kentucky is, is what a grind it becomes week to week to play these games. Because even we look at a team like Mississippi State, I mean, you wouldn't say they're an amazing team, but they're a difficult team to beat certainly certainly for those schools slightly below the Alabamas of the world who are only just above that middle level. I think that middle level in the SEC right now is stronger than any other conference and it becomes such a relentless grind week to week to keep doing it. I mean, Kentucky have beaten Florida, they've beaten Mississippi State, I think they've then gone to play Texas A&M and, and the games just come thick and fast on the back of each other and I think eventually it just wears teams out. Teams need that you know, easy win against a Kansas. You know, or a team like that. I think that really helps. But the way this, once you get into the teeth of this SEC schedule, it really separates the wheat from the chaff because you have to do it every single week, and that is very, very difficult to do.
0: You're listening to the ESPN Player College Football Show, uh, brought to you by Gridiron, with myself, Simon Clancy, and Matt Sherry. Staying with Auburn, four and two now. Pretty much no chance of winning the SEC West. Um, do you think a couple of elephants in the room? Really, offensively, they've really, really struggled, and Jarrett Stidham's performances have fallen off a cliff. A, that's got to be a concern. Do you think that Gus Malzahn, because there's now talk of of him being potentially benched, which you would have thought utterly unbelievable, a coming into the season, and b, you know, after seeing him beat Washington in, in game one. Also, D- Gus Malzahn, do you think that he's taken Auburn as far as he can take them because the the fan base is beginning to lose patience with the, the $49 million man. I mean, three days removed from the, the Mississippi State loss, he was on the podium accepting the blame himself. Um, but that's not going to allay the, the fears and the disappointments of the of the Tiger fan base, is it?
1: Yeah, I mean, the days of, of that Trey Mason-led backfield that took them to the National Championship game and, and kind of the most diverse running game in college football feel like a long time ago for Gus Malzahn. And they're a weird team because it feels like their biggest problem is they can't stack good seasons together. They just ride this roller coaster of being suddenly up there, suddenly down, suddenly up again. And and that does speak to, that, the culture. That that goes, to
0: the goes Absolutely, and that goes back to the Gene Chiswick yeah. era as well, doesn't it? I mean yeah. look, Chiswick's last season they were three and eight, were they? Yeah. And then yeah. Uh, and then um, Gus Malzahn's first season, he had the amazing turnaround with the with the the prayer at Jordan Hare and the, and kick six, and they end up in the in the national championship game. I mean, the, and that's been symbiotic of of how they've performed year in year out, really. And they can't just find that kind of consistency. I
1: just think it's. I mean, Malzahn had the chance to go back to to his home state and take the Arkansas job in the off-season. For me, he should have done that, left on a high. The problem with Auburn is they're so close to Alabama and it's really difficult to have your fan base believe in what you're doing at a time when, like, you know, within a stone's throw away, you've got the most dominant dynasty in the history of college football. I mean, that is a tough, tough spot to be in. But by the same account... I mean, all we heard in the off season was Malzan's never had a, a starting quarterback returning. He had it. He had a guy who I think everybody thinks is a potential NFL guy. Maybe not a first round pick, but certainly a high round pick who can be developed. But he now looks like it. I mean, we're talking about Joe Burrow. I mean, he's Joe Burrow's look, looking a lot better than Jared Stidham is right now. And and maybe it's the player, but for me, I would I would point the blame at, at, at the offensive scheme, which which has never really moved on from that. And developed on in the way you thought it would from that national championship team. Even last year, it was very much won on defence last year. That was the reason they were there at the end of the season. And it does feel like it's getting stale. I mean, Gus Malzahn would have been fired after last season were it not for them beating Alabama. They beat Alabama, that gets him a big money extension, which I'm pretty sure Auburn are now regretting.
0: Let's move on to the Pac-12. Uh, I said it in the Clancy on Campus column this week, which you can read via the website. Um, I, I predict that no Pac-10, 12... Uh, I don't know why I keep calling them the Pac-10. I don't know. I predict why no Pac-12 team...
1: It shows you're right Doesn't right. it?
0: Doesn't it? I'm back in the old Pac-10 days. I can um, I can pretty fearlessly predict that no Pac-12 team will make it to the playoff because it's been a It's been a really, really average year, hasn't it? In Washington at the weekend, that in inverted commas the one strong team limps pretty much past the one of the worst power five teams in UCLA Stanford lost again to, to Utah only Colorado really have been any good they're unbeaten with Steven Montez and the, and the phenomenal receiver LaVisco Chanel but you, you wonder just how you, you know when, when push comes to shove you couldn't see Colorado beating Alabama for example you know so I can't see Colorado making it into the playoff as, as, good, a, as good a team as they are um, how bad is the Pac-12
1: It's not getting any better, is it? That's the problem. Um, Kind of the great white hope in in Washington of just continue to flatter, to deceive. And I mean, their week one loss to Auburn now is getting worse by the week. I mean, we've just talked about Auburn. They lost to Auburn in week one and we thought, well, there's a route back from that because we think Auburn are going to be a national championship contender. Auburn are no longer anything close to that. So, I would be stunned if one of them makes it there. And, and it's a difficult one because even if Colorado go unbeaten, I just don't think you can put Colorado in based on the rest, the, the rest of the the rest of the conference. And, I mean, I don't think they will go unbeaten either. By the way, I don't I don't think that'll be an issue. But yeah, I'd, I'd be stunned. I mean, you're looking at a scenario in which a, a, a committee would have to say a one loss um, Washington team is better than a one loss Michigan or Ohio State or a one loss Texas or A one loss West Virginia, and all of the evidence says that that isn't the case.
0: What about, what about, um, we touched upon it earlier on. If you had a choice now, pick your four teams that, if the the playoff was being announced tonight, pick me the four teams that you think would get in now, and then give me your four predictions for the end of the season. No sitting on the fence, just uh, let's have it out.
1: Before uh, four now would probably be before the end of the season. And in order, I would say that'll be uh, Alabama, Ohio State, um, Clemson and, and Notre Dame. And then I think Bama would beat Notre Dame and Clemson, I think, would beat Ohio State. And then Alabama, Clemson once again for me. Who've you got? I, I really struggle with the Ohio State one because that, what, that, what I've just outlined is four teams probably going unbeaten and that almost never, well, it never happens. So, yeah, it's a tough one.
0: I think I would go Alabama. Today it would be Alabama, Georgia, Ohio State, Clemson. I think at the end of the season, I think it would be Alabama. But I wouldn't be surprised if Georgia beat Alabama, frankly. It would be Alabama... It's a difficult one, isn't it? Alabama, Notre Dame, Clemson. Although I think Clemson might be the weakest of the teams. And probably Ohio State.
1: I think I think Clemson are the weakest only in that they've played the weakest. I think that when it comes down to it though, Clemson have so much ability that they can beat anybody.
0: Yeah. That's a fair point. And defensively, they're very strong. I suppose a lot of it depends on the arm of Trevor Lawrence and how just how, how he develops. Yeah, exactly. He's coming
1: along week to week. I thought Clemson looked better than they've looked at any other point in the season against Wake Forest on Saturday, so...
0: And they're really getting Travis Etienne going as well, aren't they? Yep. Which is which is very yep. important. Let's kick on to this weekend because there's some massive games. Three really big games that stand out for me: Georgia, LSU, Michigan, Wisconsin, and Oregon, Washington. And uh, and from the bottom up, really, Oregon's chance to put Washington away and and kick them out of the the, the playoff race completely. I think. Um, and actually, I think that's a. That's a game that I think Oregon will win with Justin Herbert, a quarterback, uh, who should be a, a top five pick in next April's draft if, you, if he declares. What do you think about this this particular game?
1: I, I agree with you. And Oregon are actually the team who I think could have got into the playoff because that Stanford game was so ridiculous in the manner that they lost. And I'd love to see what the percentage chance of them losing was at the point when they were up by whatever they were up before the farcical fumbles and everything else. I mean, they threw that game away, but I actually think they dominated Stanford. And Stanford are a good team, not a great team. And I think at home, they'll beat Washington. And there's there's two games on, but this one's on ESPN Player. I would urge people, if you've subscribed, to watch this. Um, watch Justin Herbert against a very talented and well-coached defense because this is a kid who I think will be the first overall pick in the draft if he comes out, because I've heard some rumors recently that he might not come out because his brother's going to Oregon next year so it gives him a chance to and he hasn't actually played that much in his career he um he didn't play a lot of high school football he only played a few games last year so this is this is basically the second full season of football he's ever played in his career so they might get him back next year which is interesting but yeah I I agree I think I mean I assume Washington favored in the game but I think this is upset alert if they are because I think Oregon can win can win outright
0: yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure that Washington in Jordan Miller and Byron Murphy have corners good enough who can cover Dylan Mitchell, for example, who was dominant against Stanford and against better corners in in Stanford. I mean, Washington are, are ranked pretty highly in pass defense. I think he's 17th or 18th. I looked before we started the pod, but I, I think that Justin Herbert's got the, the talent to, to to pick them apart. Let's kick up one more game. Obviously, your boys Michigan against Wisconsin. Uh, really fascinating battle between these two sides, so with a Im- vastly improving Michigan team against a, a against a, a Wisconsin team who are coming off what they do perfectly, which is get behind Jonathan Taylor and that big offensive line. Taylor had 223 yards rushing and three touchdowns last week in their win. It, it's kind of that, that was a career high for him. This should be a, a, a really interesting battle, shouldn't it, between these two?
1: Yeah, I think we learn. I think we learn a little bit about Michigan in this game. I mean. It's it's still not the big road game that that Harbaugh needs to win, but it's the it's a big game at home that really they should win. Um, certainly at home, I think they should win. I think my only worry with Michigan in big games, and I love Don Brown, the defensive coordinator. I think he's one of the great assistant coaches in college football. But it feels like when they play good teams, the defense unravels a little bit because they're too aggressive. That's certainly what I thought happened in Week One against Notre Dame. And I mean, if they could have won that Notre Dame game now, you're looking at them being ranked in the top five. So that was a big loss, and it, and and I would point most of the blame for that towards just giving up a 17 0 lead early in the game that was unsurmount, insurmountable on the road. So I'd like to what I'd like to see as a Michigan fan is a dominant defensive performance, but maybe maybe not necessarily selling out as much as they often do in these games because I think that is what has cost them in a lot of big games over the the run so far and you'd like to see some adjustments there but I mean Wisconsin are a tough team to play hard-nosed team but I think I think that Michigan have a, have a good formula to beat them they have a they have a great defense I think the Wisconsin defense the Wisconsin defense can be got at a lot more than last year they haven't looked anywhere near as impressive on defense as they did last year or I expected them to this year so I think Michigan win this game but this is the kind of game that they need to win because if they lose this the pressure really mounts on Harbor, and this is the start of a back-to-back run in which they play this game, and then they play Michigan State on the road, which I actually think is the tougher game, despite Wisconsin being a better team. Because if any, if Michigan State as a well-coached team are going to get up for any game, it's Michigan coming to town. So this is a must-win one for for Michigan, and and I think they'll I think they'll do it.
0: Yeah, and it's th- these are games that Harbor has struggled. To, to win really isn't it these big games you know because Michigan essentially controls their own destiny don't they in the Big Ten East but they've still got to beat well they've still got to win this game but they, then they've still got to beat Penn State they've still got to beat Ohio State which is you know as I said famously has been a, a tall task for for Jim Harbaugh but what you're getting with Michigan is a quarterback in Shea Patterson who's really coming into his own I mean I think I saw a stat yesterday in which I think he's one of only five four power five quarterbacks to have more than um, to have more games in which they completed more than 70 percent of their passes with 15 more, 15 or more attempts. I think it's Jake From, Dwayne Haskins, Stephen Montez at Colorado, and kyla Murray, and, and him. You know, I think he's completing 74, 70.4 percent of his passes, which is, which is terrific. And I, I, and I think that plays into Michigan's strength in this game specifically because I think Wisconsin, certainly in their defensive backfield, are, it, you know, they're down to literally kind of. Last man standing. Really, I think Dakota Dixon, the safety, got hurt last week. I think Fionn Hicks has been injured. He's had a uh, he's had a hand injury. Uh, Deron Harrell is in concussion protocol. Uh, Scott Nelson was chucked out of the game last week for targeting against uh, against Nebraska, and I think that he misses the first half this week. You got Trevon Blaylock and Caesar Williams who missed last week's game against Nebraska with leg injuries. Both are on the the, the injury report with uh, and are questionable for this weekend. It's fascinating to see that you know I think Patterson could really. Yeah, you know, you're not getting a full strength Badger team, and I think Michigan could could look to take advantage. That I think said, they, these
1: are the games, though, where this is why they've got Shea Patterson is him to be the difference in the these games because these are the games that have defined Harbaugh's tenure so far. In that they, they've been really good some of these years. I mean, the, the year that they were beat on the bad call at Ohio State was was a year that they should have been in the playoff. That was a really good team, but you just felt like in the biggest game, did. They were better than Ohio State that year. They'd very nearly beat them on the road, but they didn't have the quarterback who could make the play at the time to take a team from 17 points to 24 points, and that's what they need from Shea Patterson. So I agree with everything you're saying. These are the games that, they've, that, that, that they got him in for, and, and I think Michigan, all eyes on him this week.
0: Yeah, I think um, I think it'll come down, actually, to the battle between Patterson and that defensive backfield and then Jonathan Taylor against that defensive line because I think that's obviously where the game will be while a loss. Michigan won't have seen a back as good as Taylor at all this season, will they? And and to be fair to Taylor, he won't have seen a defensive line as good as as the one he's going to go up against. So it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. Georgia-LSU, not quite the luster that it would have had if LSU had got past Florida, but still a fascinating game and one, as we talked about, in in which LSU could essentially... Recalibrate their their playoff chances if they can beat Georgia, but I, I personally don't see it. I think From and Justin Fields and that running game I just think is too strong, and I think that defensively, DeAndre Baker and, and that excellent Georgia backfield will just have too much for, for Joe Burrow and, and LSU. How do you see it playing out?
1: I, I think it's fascinating. I mean, I'm just looking on on ESPN, and, and the cheapest ticket for the game is two hundred and sixteen dollars, which shows how how into it people are. I, I, think, I think it, I, I think Georgia will, will win a close game. But I wouldn't be surprised if LSU did it. I really wouldn't. I mean, you're coming off a bit of disappointment from last week. You're at home. I mean, Tiger Stadium is is an X factor in a game like this. And I think Georgia have, have had maybe the easiest run so far through the season of, of any team so far, of any of these big teams. I think there comes a point in this game where uh, kind of LSU punch Georgia in the face, and Georgia wake up and think, "Oh, we're in a game now. This is what it's like again." And then I think the game will come down to whether Georgia can respond to that, and I think they will respond. But I think they'll—I think it'll be close. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if we are in a situation where two minutes left in the game, LSU down less than seven, and Joe Burrow has the ball in his hands, and it's whether you can you can drive down the field at home against a, a great team.
0: Be interesting as well because obviously Georgia runs the ball very well. I think they're in the top fifteen statistically in terms of running the ball. They haven't played a, a defense against the run that that ranks in the top sixty-five. LSU obviously does. Devin White, the the, the outstanding middle linebacker, will be a first-round pick next year. We'll try and control that running game. It, that should be the game within the game. That should be where it's won and lost.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And and I'm also interested to see with Georgia. If, if it doesn't work early with From, just say LSU's defence is getting on top is this the game where we see a little bit more of Justin Fields or is it the game where the coaches say no From is our guy he plays the whole game because Georgia I mean we've talked a lot this year about these two quarterback dynamics Georgia have been the most low key team of all because they've, they've used Fields in spots but they've never pressed them into big action because they've been so far ahead in games it's been easy to manage I do wonder in this game, does that change one way or the other? And I would lean towards, you say to Justin Fields, look, we're not putting you in this game. We're bringing you along slowly in, in other games. But this is a Jake from game. But it'd be also fascinating to see if it goes the other way as well.
0: This is the tough part now of Georgia's schedule as well, isn't it? They've kind of been through the bottom feeders of the SEC East and now, you know, if they're they're to be a national title contender, this is where they really have to kick it up. Like you say, very much under the radar and they're going to have to prove themselves in arguably the most difficult setting in all of college football, which is Death Valley.
1: Yeah, exactly. And and it starts a four-game stretch in which they play four ranked teams. I mean, one of those is Auburn, who it's absolutely insane that they're still ranked, Um, but... By the same account, yeah. I mean, and you don't want to start that four-game stretch with a loss. So it's 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 going to be so fascinating, this one. My only worry with it, from an LSU perspective, is can they match Georgia in terms of explosive plays? I think in the, in the minutiae of the game, in the kind of the small ball game, as it were, in terms of yards down the field and making small plays and building long drives, I think LSU can match Georgia. But I think there'll be points in this game where Georgia have a 40-yard play, a a 50-yard play, another 30-yard play, another 20-yard play, and I'm not sure LSU can match that. that. That's what would worry me. I think that there comes a point where Georgia have some big plays, they put a bit more of a lead on the board, and then it's whether LSU can, can respond to that.
0: We'll get to the games that you can see on ESPN Player this weekend in a moment. Um, just one little note that I've just seen that Kelly Bryant, the the Clemson quarterback who obviously uh, transferred because of the the after losing the starting job to Trevor Lawrence, has been on a visit this weekend to uh, or last weekend to to North Carolina. And actually, he fits very well in that Larry Fedora offense, doesn't he? Because that kind of dual passing. Uh, running offense that Fedora likes. I think it was Marquise Williams back in twenty fifteen, twenty sixteen, maybe, who had sort of three thousand yards passing and a thousand yards rushing. They went eleven and three, with a, a similar star quarterback to to, to Kelly Bryant. That would be a. a you know, it's not one of the teams we talked about, but that would certainly represent a fit, wouldn't it? Yeah, I
1: mean, if it suggests that he's keen to stay in the area as well, doesn't it? I think that's that's the thing. I'd be disappointed. I don't know about you, but I would like to see him go to you know, UCLA and kickstart Chip Kelly's second reign. But yeah, it'd be interesting. It'd be also interesting to watch him play against Clemson. I mean, I think that's the, that's the bigger appealing part of
0: that. There's some serious apathy about, uh, about Chip Kelly, isn't he? Because this, this, this is their worst, the Bruins' worst start since 1943 to a season. Uh, I think that the fan base, the student section are decidedly uh, frustrated about, uh, about what's going on there and that, um, I mean, it feels like he's losing the fan base almost at this point.
1: Yeah, and I think the problem for Kelly is that, you know, with his track record, you, it should be that you just say, well, he's going to figure it out. That Everybody knew it was kind of a, a long rebuild and it was going to take time. But I think because of the way it went in the NFL, people look at him now and think, well, is it more just the fact that the rest of the world caught up with your great innovation? And and that's the the, the big question that, that he needs to answer. I mean, if you if you dig deep on that 0-5 star. I'm not sure it's as bad as it looks. Um, Cincinnati, in week one, I mean, they're still 5-0 and, and are now ranked. Oklahoma, I mean, not... Fresno State's the one that I think is, is the worst loss on the schedule. But actually, I think they've looked a little bit better the last couple of games, even... I mean, you mentioned the Washington game. They played that closer than you would have expected. And the other loss was to Colorado, another unbeaten team. So... I mean Fresno State are four and one as well. This is what's that, a combined three losses for the five teams that they've that they've been beaten by. So so it looks really bad, but actually they've played a pretty decent schedule so far. They need to they need to start winning some of these other games now. You've got Carl next, you've got Arizona who've been dreadful under Kevin Sumlin. Utah, a decent team. That'll be a tough game. Arizona State, Oregon, tough games. USC, Stanford. So, I mean, it doesn't get that much easier, but I think they need to win the next two games, and it's still going to have been a bad season. But, I mean, they were the youngest team in college football. They started more redshirt freshmen than any team in week one. So, I don't think Chip Kelly, based on that, was looking at this as a year to compete. So, so, if this happens... I mean, I remember when Washington State, when Mike Leach took over, and... The first season was two or three wins. It was dreadful. And every year since then, they've had a winning record. You've just got to be patient when you, when you get a guy in, especially a guy who, who the way he does things is so different to the predecessor. I mean, that team was built around how Jim Mora wanted to play football. And, and it, it, it's a gradual process getting it to the point where it can be built around how Chip Kelly wants to play
0: it's worth noting that the teams UCLA have played a uh, combined 24 and 3 this season and that uh, Wilton Spate the, obviously the Michigan transfer who won the starting job in the summer went down in week one yeah. because of injury and yeah. they've been playing Dorian Thompson Robinson the true freshman who you know who was a hugely uh, you know, big time recruit but, but, very but, broad, um, but
1: very raw absolutely,
0: absolutely but very raw is it, is is there a devil's advocate argument that Chip Kelly has not really, uh, has flattered to deceive since what happened at Oregon, and that actually he is the, he is really living off what he did with the Ducks and has struggled ever since? Um, it's a uh, difficult one. Is he overrated?
1: I don't think he is. Um, I loved him at Oregon. I thought he started brilliantly in the NFL. I thought that the reason Philadelphia got rid of him was more the discord he'd created in the in the in the background rather than the on-field product. And I mean, it doesn't look good for him that ultimately Philadelphia went back to the guy who he jettisoned as the general manager and then won the Super Bowl. I admit that. But I mean, the 49ers year was ridiculous. I mean, that was the worst team in the NFL that season. They won a couple of games, but to just fire him after a year was was ludicrous. Um, I like Kelly and I do worry about what I said, which is that maybe his one big innovation has been caught up with does he have something else to fall back on but I mean this guy loves the game he spends a lot of great coaches say a lot of great things about Chip Kelly be it Bill Belichick or anybody else so I don't think he is overrated and I think he will prove the doubters wrong
0: Okay, let's get to the Heisman very quickly I think our top five Heismans that we do every week in terms of our list I think I had this week, I've got Tua Tungavailoa still at number one. He's got a knee sprain, and uh, but has practiced in full this week, so should play. Kyler Murray bounced back to number two. Dwayne Haskins at three. I think I put Sam Erlinger in at four, and I, and I really should have put LaVisca Chenault in, the Colorado receiver. I think he he is a a better candidate there, and I think he's deserving of that. And Darrell Henderson bounced back with another massive game. He's now 64 yards away from 1,000 on the season. I had Will Greer dropping out, Trace McSorley dropping out, Benny Snell dropping out. Where do you stand on on this match? What's your what's your take on your Heisman Top? I, mean, five? I
1: had I had um Tua Kyler Murray Chenault Trace McSorley and then Haskins rounds out the top five for me. I just I mean the Haskins Haskins has bounced back since that Penn State game, but I thought that he was outplayed by McSorley. So for now I'm I'm keeping him above him
0: you know that Tua has yet to play in the fourth quarter still this season it's astonishing it's ridiculous
1: we just have to hope that LSU can play them close enough to to make that happen before the championship
0: came exactly thanks for listening don't forget you can sign up to a monthly or annual pass to get ESPN players extensive coverage of college football and that includes more than 700 games this season live and on demand plus three channel simulcast direct from the United States, that's ESPN, U, the SEC Network, and the Longhorn Network. Also access to a range of great documentaries from the ESPN Films catalog, including the, the, the great 30 for 30 lineup, the, the O.J. Simpson documentary, which we talk about all, all the time, the U, Elway to Marino. Uh, I watched The Gospel According to Mac the other night, which was absolutely phenomenal as a, as a sort of a, a guy who would rate Colorado as my sort of second team behind Florida State. It was great to go back to those those days of Eric Bieniemy and uh, Darian Hagen, and uh, and when Colorado won the national championship, that was—it's just a phenomenal, phenomenal ninety minutes just to lose yourself. But there is so much on there that you can uh, you can download, you can watch, and, and flick around from live game to live game on a Saturday evening. It really, if you're not going out and don't have a life like like both of us, it's uh, <laughs> it's great to do. And if that wasn't enough, when you sign up, you get a free seven-day trial. Do not forget the podcast will be back next week. You can get Clancy on Campus, which will be our sort of written review, which you'll find on the website from Monday and then over the weekend and certainly Saturday morning, there'll be the video with our sort of three tips of uh, of games to watch and a potential upset, which I think this week will be Oregon beating Washington, although that won't be a massive upset, but I do think that that Oregon will win out there. Thank you very much for listening. Matthew, we shall be back next week.
1: Look forward to it, buddy. Thank you. Goodbye. Thanks, brother.